Hi, I'm Isra Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hunt. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio, a football podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in DC and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. There's no better feeling than a personal win and the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome into Off the Pike, recording late on a Thursday night after the Celtics survive in Philadelphia. We will see a Game 7, baby. Oh, man. This was incredible. Jason Tatum, he was horrible all game. He finally hits the shots late, so that was awesome. We're going to chat with Raheem Palmer in just a little bit here. We'll get into this game in greater detail. Of course, Raheem from The Ringer, the Philly special. We did this as a double for FanDuel TV as well, so me and Raheem will go back and forth on the Celtics Sixers game, which is just wild. It had everything, including the officials were absolutely horrible in this game. Crazy performances left and right. You had a epic Marcus Smart game. So we'll get into all that with Raheem and then we'll chat with Ben Lindbergh from The Ringer. He's got a couple of great articles up about the pace in Major League Baseball, some of the improvements. And of course, we'll get into a ton of Red Sox with Ben Lindbergh. So we'll do all that next here on Off the Pike. Welcome in crossover episode tonight. Brian Barrett here from Off the Pike, and we have Raheem Palmer from the Philly Special. And thanks to our friends at FanDuel TV for joining us as well. Raheem, that was an absolutely insane game. We had pretty much everything. We had maybe on track to be the worst game of Jason Tatum's career. We had officiating issues in this game. We had sort of Joel Embiid disappearing late in this game where he had been so good in the previous game. It wasn't a great Harden game either where do you want to start with this thing I think we got to start with Tatum right yeah we got to start with Tatum I mean I was like I was waiting for the Tatum slander like it was (laughs) I mean I was waiting for social media to go off I was about to call him the Donovan McNabb of the NBA um, in terms of just being a guy who could just you know he gets to you know the champion the, the conference finals or he gets to the Super Bowl and just can't I mean pull it off and out of nowhere I mean Three straight threes and the game is over. (laughs) Yeah, it's incredible. And the thing is, he was so bad early. He had those 16 points in the fourth quarter. But prior to that, entering that quarter, he had three points. And he had one trip to the foul line. And it was at that time, it was the clear pass foul that he got the free throw for. And now, like, one of the things that we were talking about entering this game was, hey, can Tatum get off to a quicker start? 
And Tatum, again, doesn't score, of course, in the first quarter. So now his last three first quarters, 36 minutes, 0 of 15 from the field, 0 of 6 from deep, three points. And then somehow, and he was missing bunnies, Raheem. He was smoking layups. I don't think I've ever seen a superstar smoke so many layups like Jason Tatum has in this. He was bricking threes. And then I give him a ton of credit because, and I know it's like, oh, you're the best player on the team. You're supposed to be able to come up with these clutch shots. But as poorly as he shot the ball late in this game, I think what got him going was the wing three over in bead. That made it 84-83. Then he hits the step back three over Max. He makes it 87-83. And then he gets a Maxi switch on him, hits a three there, makes it 92-84. And then he hits another three to make it at the end where it's 95-84. But from my perspective, he got a mismatch on Embiid where he could step back on him and they got to Maxi. So this is something that I've been calling for all series. Go after the mismatches. Every other team in the NBA, mismatch hunts. The Celtics don't do it. They can go after Maxi on every possession, whatever they want to, and they haven't been doing it. And finally, the time you do it is when your superstar finally hit a three and you say, okay, maybe we help him out a little bit. And I'm not excusing Tatum's performance, but finally they did the obvious thing in this game, which I'm so happy they finally realized, hey, we can go at Tyrese Maxi. He's small. Jason Tatum is big. Go after him. You know, it felt like they were going at Maxi tonight at certain times, but it felt like Maxi's defense was pretty solid up until that point. Um, I do agree with you. It, to me, it feels like they don't get anything e- easy for Tatum. And the one thing I will say is that it felt like MB kind of had Tatum spooked a little bit inside the yeah. arc. I mean, so it's just like when he's driving to the lane, you know MB is there. And I, I saw that from the entire Celtics team. The one thing I want to see from Tatum going forward is I think he needs to you know, add that mid-range jumper, you know, get some easy, easy baskets because it feels like right now it's all, you know, to the lane or it's just step back threes. Um, But I kind of knew that to me, based on how the Sixers offense had been stalling out, I knew Tatum was going to hit that three over Embiid. I just felt it. Yeah. And I'll tell you, I was the opposite side of that. I didn't think he had a chance at hitting it the way that he was shooting the ball all night. But it's a great point. Like he doesn't have a floater game. And He's actually not a bad mid-range shooter, like if you look at some of the numbers throughout the postseason, but he just doesn't want to take it. Really, he's become almost what James Harden was in Houston, where it's like, okay, if I can get to the rim, fine. If I can get to the free throw line, fine. Or if I can take a three, fine. But what we saw in the NBA Finals against the Warriors last year, he shot 25% in the in-between area, in between the mid-range and the basket, and that really cost him in that series. And we're seeing that same thing play itself out in the postseason. The one thing I will say, because I'm giving Tatum a lot of credit for coming through clutch when they needed to. And I do think that he made a lot of good plays defensively, even early on when his shot wasn't falling. But the one thing, Raheem, is this Mm -hmm. guy is so lucky that he has so much margin of error with this team. I mean, just think about any other superstar. If Steph Curry on Friday night has this game against the Lakers, they lose. If Devin Booker has that type of game, the Suns lose. And I can even go to a guy that's not a superstar, but a star-level player in Jalen Brunson. The guy plays 48 minutes the other night. He has to carry that team. He has the 38 points. If he has a stinker on Friday night against the Miami Heat, they lose. Same thing with Jimmy Butler. This is the only guy in the league that, and he's a first team all NBA selection. He's the only guy in the entire league that can get away with these type of stinkers. Now he did give him credit, hit those shots late. But really, man, if if I'm Tatum now, I got to look at this game seven and say, this is mine. Like, I have to win this game after my teammates have bailed me out in this series already because Smart, Brogdon, they kept him alive early in this game. 
Yeah, yeah, Smart was the MVP of this game. I mean, 22 points, 8 of 15, you know, all the hustle plays, you know, 7 rebounds, 7 assists. I mean, he he by far, like, he showed that he was the heart of this team. And, you know, it's so funny because you always hear a lot of people say, you know, Smart probably shouldn't be closing down the stretch. Um, they probably should be going to Derek White a little bit more. But I may have I mean, said Smart that once or twice. <laughs> I feel like the entire Ringer staff has been saying that, but it's just like I think you saw why that you know it's, it's tough for Missoula to come in and, and, and say you know what Smart you can't you can't play these big minutes. So, um, but she had Tatum. I mean, like you just don't see that margin for error for anybody, and I think you even see it with the Sixers. I mean, to me, in this series, and I've been saying this all season long. James Harden is the Sixers' most important player. And I say that because, you know, as good as Joel Embiid is, it, you can deny a perimeter player the ball. Like, you saw down the stretch, Joel Embiid didn't get the ball. You know, yeah. he had that one mid-range jumper after Tatum took the lead, um, hit the, the three to take the lead to make it 84-83, and he missed the mid-range jumper. One of the few mid-range jumpers he missed all day because it just felt like he was making them at will. But you can deny a perimeter. You can deny a center the ball. But your right. perimeter player has to close the games. And, you know, I always the comparison I always give is that, you know, Shaq, he had Penny Hardaway. He had Kobe Bryant. He had Dwayne Wade. Those guys were closing these games almost more than Shaq, to be honest with you, because Shaq had free throw issues. You know, it's tough to get the, a, a center the ball. So to me, James Harden has to close the games out. And you saw he was just 4 of 16. He was reluctant to shoot in the paint. You know, he had turnovers. He's dishing the PG. PG um Tucker, he's dishing the melt and they're missing threes. And I need more than 13 points from James Harden if you're gonna win this series. And I just think that's the difference between these two teams is that you guys have those perimeter guys who, you know, can close a game out. Well, the Harden experience is such a weird one, right? Because he goes for the 45 points in game one. And I'm thinking to myself, there's no way he duplicates that in game two. We're not gonna see that version of James Harden. Then he's bad again in game or he's bad in game two, really bad, bad in game three. He has the explosion in game four where Jalen Brown double teams Joel Embiid inexplicably. I'm still mad about that, Raheem, because the series would be over. James Harden hits a wide open three. And then in game five, it wasn't his scoring, but I felt like he had a really good floor game where he sort of controlled everything. And that Embiid, James Harden pick and roll was basically unstoppable for them. And then he has this game tonight. And it's sort of similar to like the Celtics. I don't know which version of Jason Tatum showing up in game seven. I do feel like this should wake him up and this should sort of the momentum should carry over from this one. But I feel like with both guys where you say Harden's the most important sixer and obviously Tatum is so important to the Celtics team as the guy that has all the accolades and the guy that has already qualified for the Supermax well over $300 million. And it's weird, like if you're a Miami fan, you can't feel confident about your superstar going into a big game. If you're Denver, you feel confident. And I think we're probably in the same spot. Like, I don't feel confident about Tatum, and I'm sure you don't feel confident about Ta uh, Harden entering game seven. Yeah, I, I don't I don't feel confident in Harden at all. Um, it's just you just don't know what you're going to get from him. And, like, I coming into this series, I thought Harden wasn't in the same guy because, you know, you saw that Achilles injury on, on March 20th against the Chicago Bulls. He was struggling. And then in the series against the Brooklyn Nets, he was struggling to beat switches. So for him to come out and have that monster game one, it was absolutely shocking. And then for him to do it again, it's <laughs> just like, it, it just almost feels at random. I mean, you know, they talk about Anthony Davis every other game. I mean, it's clear that Harden's the same way. So, I mean, game sevens are historically ugly. So I'm honestly expecting both teams to just look ugly. Yeah. And 
like anything can happen. Yeah, we, we kind of already got that, too, in game six. Like, it's probably going to be something similar. But I'm telling you, I fear James Harden just because I have scar tissue from game one and game four of the series. So I'm worried about that. One thing I will say is this. Throughout this series, and look, we have criticized Doc Rivers a ton. By we, I mean, like, a lot of people in the media, right? Mm -hmm. Because he's blown all these 3-1 series leads. He's blown 3-2 series leads. And at times, you felt like, okay... He should have done more things from a coaching perspective. Like when he's undermanned, he's really good. But then when he has all his guys, he hasn't been as good. And one thing in the series that has been crystal clear is Doc Rivers is a veteran coach that made adjustments. And up until game six on Thursday night, we hadn't seen that from Joe Missoula. So some of the things that Doc was doing, he took McDaniels out of the rotation, basically because he felt like, hey, if McDaniels is on the court, Rob can cheat off him and sort of be that roamer. He did an outstanding job in game four getting Jalen Brown off of James Harden to give him easier opportunities, right? Easier driving lanes, better matchups, going after guys like Malcolm Brogdon and Al Horford. So Doc made a really some good decisions, even going to Niang, right, where he could spot up and hit those open shots and force Rob to come out on him. Finally, Raheem, it only took elimination for Joe Mazzulla to wake up. Now, I had an idea that this is going to happen today. He goes back to the double big lineups. Rob Williams starts the game. Guess what happens? He's a game high plus 20. He goes for 10, 9, and 2. And I will say, I thought he was gassed at the end because he hadn't been playing a lot of minutes. But it took him up until this yeah. point to finally press that button. And if you look at it, uh, before this game tonight, in terms of, or excuse me, before this game on Thursday, Robert Williams on the court, Celtics 124.3 offensive rating, 111.8 defensive rating, best of the regulars, a plus 12.5 net rating. So I'm thinking to myself, like, I get the idea of not playing him that much because he's scared of the spacing and all that different type of stuff. But man, it took him this long to do it. And you saw the results. It's sort of aggravating from a Celtics perspective that you had this button you could push and you hadn't done it till this point. Yeah, like th that was surprising. Um. You know, just because, like, to me, it's just like Robert Williams, like, he's one of the guys that you can throw at Joel Embiid. And, you know, he's like, he's one of those guys that can make things tough in the lane. And I think you saw that tonight, you know, like, in games, in game five, one of the things that you saw was the the hard Embiid pick and roll. They scored, you know, 1.2 points per possession in that pick and roll. And they just dominated in the paint and kind of got whatever they wanted. You know, in game six, that was down to just pretty much a point per possession. So I think Robert Williams definitely made an impact defensively. Um, and then offensively, that's the one thing that I like. I, I saw that they got a lot of easy baskets to Robert Williams on those lives. Like it just, I mean, you see like Marcus Smart driving to the basket and you can't defend both. So he probably should have been in there earlier, especially with um, Horford hasn't been shooting the ball as well as he has in the past. So um, I did think that was a great move. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, because, like, the numbers with him and Al on the court together this year have been tremendous. A plus 15.9 rating, so they're outscoring teams by almost 16 points per 100 possessions with those two guys on the court. So I was, and I know that the Derek White lineup has been so good throughout the season, but White had really been bad in this series up until he was the worst among their regulars in plus minus. So it made sense to make that move. And now you look at it sort of going forward, I wonder if there is a counter for what Doc's going to do, right? Because he's obviously he's playing P.J. Tucker a lot of minutes. We saw a lot of Niang. We've seen Melton. And basically, they gambled with the situation with P.J. Tucker where they said, hey, we're okay with you taking threes. And yeah, he hit a couple of them, but 
He ends up taking, what, seven threes in this game tonight? He's two of seven from the field, or two of seven from three-point territory, I believe he finished out with. So I think that gamble is a wise one. And I wonder if Melton or especially Niang out in the wing, but Melton is more of a guy that can be a weapon driving those closeouts. But at the same time, you don't, Tucker's kind of the guy that gets everybody motivated, right? So I, and he's really good from a defensive perspective. So I wonder what Doc does. I, I would assume he does pretty much the same thing. Like, do you think he'll make any changes? Glenn is in a tough position just because we don't have two-way players in the same vein that you guys have. Um, you know, it's like, if Melton was hitting his shot tonight, I mean, I think the Sixers win that game because he had like three dagger threes in a row that would have pushed this lead to a point where I don't think the six, the Celtics could have recovered. And you saw down the stretch, it was just like, I, I said it on Twitter, I'm like, he's going to have to pull Melton for Niang. But then when you pull him for Niang, you don't get the same defensive presence. And, you know, Niang didn't really hit a, a clutch three down the stretch. So... It's like you end up pulling him for P.J. Tucker just because you want that defensive presence. But if P.J. Tucker's not hitting his three, it just makes the offense a lot easier to defend. So I just think Glenn is kind of really in a tough spot, and he kind of has to just play the hot hand. Um, um, I think, you know, you'll probably see P.J. Tucker in the game down the stretch just because he does the dirty work. He can defend, you know, those wings that you guys have. But um, it's pretty much between him and Melton, honestly. Yeah, and I wonder, too, from a Celtics perspective in this, just from Jalen Brown's angle, because I felt like Jalen had a nice start to this game, but then he did some of those typical Jalen things. Like, at one point, he's just dribbling the ball at the top of the key. He loses it. It's a tie game at that particular point in time, and that's where we get the clear path foul, and it ends up being two shots the other way because Tatum picks up that foul. But what we saw from the Celtics team last postseason is they turn the ball over, and ordinarily, when they turn the ball over 16 times, they lose. Luckily, in this case... That did not happen, but I was surprised with the fact that it wasn't a super Jalen game, and we know that Tatum didn't get going till late, so the fact that the Celtics were able to sort of stay alive in this game when Jalen had it going early but then kind of faltered, and the fact that Tatum was bad throughout the game until the very end, that's one of the things that surprised me. We went mentioned Smart, but the other guy that I think had a real impact in this game was Brogdon early, and Brogdon was really good in the first half, kind of keeping that offense alive. And one of the things I thought about him is in this game, he was hitting his three. And the other portion of that is he's the one guy throughout this whole series, I think has taken advantage of what Philly doesn't do well, where we weren't over this Raheem, where the transition defense for Philadelphia all season long has been bad. And finally, like we've seen Brogdon push the ball, push the ball, push the ball when some of the other Celtics haven't been doing that. So the fact that you can bring Brogdon off the bench and he really saves this game in some sense for the Celtics like and you think back to the offseason you don't make this move for Malcolm Brogdon you're probably going home in game six as great as smart was and he was tremendous in this game you needed Brogdon too with the way that your superstars really weren't great in this one yeah um I mean without a doubt and you know the one thing I, I'm just noticing is that you you guys only played seven guys tonight like we yeah, didn't took Grant out yeah, Grant, I mean, Grant didn't play. I mean, he's been a big part of the rotation for, you know, quite some time. So, you know, that was that was kind of shocking to, to see. So, I mean, Brogdon playing 30 minutes and giving you everything that he, he gave was just huge. I mean, this is a guy who, you know, is just is pushing the pace, hitting the three. And, you know, I mean, it's a common thing with you guys. When you guys are hitting the three, I mean, you guys can't be beat. <laughs> so, you know, 15 to 35 from behind the arc, you guys got off to that big lead to start the game. And, you know, I think how you guys came out was huge um, just because you guys didn't let the Sixers really get any momentum. And, you know, the second half, the Sixers kind of had control of the game 
but they didn't have more than a, a two to four point lead, really. Yeah, well, the threes is a great point because Tim Bontemps said this a couple of weeks ago, and I've been tracking it ever since. So when the Celtics hit north of 40% of their threes after the game tonight, they're now 35 and two. When they hit south of 40% from three, they're 29 and 28. So they're basically a 500 team when they don't hit 40% of their threes. When they hit 40% of their threes, they're basically unbeatable. Now, Jason Tatum tried to make it that they didn't get to that 40% threshold tonight, but they certainly did. The other thing that stuck out to me about the Celtics is, and maybe part of this is what we mentioned about the Rob adjustment, is the defense was actually there. Where we've seen too many times in this postseason, specifically against Philly, where the Celtics defense has just been downright atrocious, and especially in game five. The defense on the pick and roll from Harden and Embiid, it was just so nonchalant where Embiid was walking in to these easy free throw jumpers, which Embiid, he thrives there. He shoots 49% this year on long mid-rangers. In that game, 11 of his two-pointers were deemed wide open, where the closest defender is at least, or I should say, open four to six feet, wide open six feet or more, at least at least open. 11 of those shots, he hit six of them. It's as if the Celtics didn't know what the game plan was, it's as if they didn't know that Embiid can hit those shots. And if you look at it, that game five loss against Philly, a 121.1 rating for the Celtics in terms of the defense. The worst team in the league this year was the Spurs at like a buck 18. The Celtics in this game tonight, they pick it up from a defensive efficiency standpoint. And in the first quarter, they held Philly to an 84 offensive rating. So it's weird that a team that made it to the finals last year was the number two defense in the league during the regular season. They've had so many times where the defensive energy wasn't there. And I would imagine to be there for game seven, too, because it's an elimination. It's sort of like there's been this change with the Celtics where they've gone from this defensive juggernaut to this offensive team this year embracing the three. And sometimes they just let go of the rope defensively. And that is a problem because I, I, I like I said, Raheem, I think it's going to be there in game seven, but I can't guarantee it just like I can't guarantee the Tatum thing because we've seen way too many times where the defense is just let go of the rope. Yeah, I mean, you know, I was like, I was talking about this on the podcast today. Um, you know, since game three of the first round series against the Hawks, the Celtics had a like, defensive rating of 119. So... I'm not sure that you guys can really even count on the defense at this point in time. I just think, you know, we've seen enough through the Celtics in this postseason that this is an offensive-minded team at this point. Um, and, you know, this core has been around each other for a long time. And I think you you do tend to see slippage. I mean, you look at the Golden State Warriors, um, you know, that core who made a ton of deep runs. You know, they were first and second in defense every year. But that last year with Kevin Durant, I mean, they they just weren't defending. They were winning with offense. And I think you're seeing that same type of slippers with this the Celtics team. But then in addition, I mean, you got a brand new coach who I don't know if he emphasizes defense as much as Ime Udoka. Um, I, I can't to me, it's inexplicable when you have these these wings um, that you're not the same defensive team. But, you know, maybe some of that is, you know, slippage due to Horford. Like, I mean, you look at a guy like Horford, right? Joel Embiid couldn't deal with him a couple years ago. I mean, he was like his right. kryptonite. And now, you know, Joel Embiid has pretty much figured that matchup out. So um, I, I think, you know, some of it is Horford. You know, also Tom Lord isn't the same guy that he was last year. Um, you know, he had, what did he have, a meniscus, men, meniscus injury? Yeah. So it's like, um, I, I think it's clear that, you know, like even, like, he played well tonight, but I don't know how consistent you can get 
he can be, you know, over a, an entire seven game series if he's playing big minutes. Yeah. And maybe that will be the blessing of the disguise that he waited this long to make that adjustment. Right. Maybe it'll work yeah. out that he'll have energy for that game seven. But part of the defensive issue, it, it is Missoula, to your point. And one of the things he said after the game five loss was we had the intention of playing hard. I don't know what that means. You intended to play hard. That doesn't make any sense. The effort wasn't there from a defensive perspective. And one of the things I noticed, like they made the adjustments tonight, but every time they show the bench, it's Horford and Smart. Those are the guys doing all the talking. It's it's as if like that would be Ime. Ime Udoka last yeah. year would be that guy. He would get in everybody's face. Ten games into the season, he's calling out Tatum and Brown. He didn't care. He was sort of the tough guy on the team, right? Like sort of what PJ Tucker did to Embiid. Remember that PJ Tucker's like firing up Embiid at the end of game five, like, let's go, you gotta get it together. That's Ime. And for this team, Joe Mazzula really doesn't have that in his arsenal. Part of it maybe is that he's 34. He was behind the bench last year. Like he wasn't even on the bench and this guy takes over. They have this 21 and five start and everyone's like, oh, this is magic. The offense embrace the threes. And then we saw, okay, maybe you got to play some defense. And I just wonder now, like going into game seven, I think one of, and I don't think this is over yet in terms of the Celtics narrative, because if they lose game seven, Jalen Brown, we know is qualified for the Supermax. Jason Tatum is qualified for the Supermax. But if they don't win this game seven, I believe like the Sixers, Doc, he's not going to get fired after this series. I can't see that happening. Maybe you disagree with that. But from a Celtics... I, I, see, I, I, I can see it. I'm going to be honest with you. If he, if he falls... Yeah. 3-2 if he falls... Yeah. Yeah. Just because, I mean, you look down the stretch. I mean, they didn't run any pick and rolls um, for a Harden and MB. And, you know, like I, I said before that, you know, in game five, they were scoring 1.2 points per possession on Harden and MB pick and rolls. That was down to a point per possession, but you know that's still that's still pretty efficient, you know. Um, and they didn't run any of that, you know. And then the fact that it's just like they got nothing easy down the stretch. Um, and that game was theirs. I mean, for for the Celtics to close out the game on a fourteen to three run on the road yeah. after the clear path foul, I mean, it's gonna be hard for for. For the Glenn to survive that, um, and you have people all on, like it, it yeah, just you're is. probably right. Like, <laughs> yeah, you're probably right on that. But from a Celtics perspective, if they lose, then yeah. hey, is Joe Mazzulla safe? Even though they took off the interim tag, I would imagine that they put the supermax in front of Jalen. Even if that's if you don't believe Jalen's a supermax player, with everything that happened with the Kevin Durant trade rumors, he was really upset about that. He had the quotes to Logan Murdoch uh, in the Ringer a couple of what months ago where he talked about yeah. Boston and if he wants to stick around or not. Like, there's been some weird stuff with Jalen, but I can't imagine nobody, we haven't seen anybody pass up on that Supermax. So if it's not Jalen, it's not Tatum, they're not breaking up that duo. We will see about Missoula based on sort of what transpires here. But if they lose game seven, I would imagine that they look at maybe some rotation guys, whether it be Robert Williams, whether it be Marcus Smart, who's like always on the trading block, right? Derek White, like they have a lot of valuable pieces if they want to make a change when it comes to this team. I can't imagine it'd be White after the season that he's had, but I think everything's on the table besides Tatum and Jalen if they don't win this game seven. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. You know, um, you know, I always hear you guys talk about Marcus Smart um, and, and Bill as well. I'm wondering if Smart is in a very similar position as like Dylan Brooks. And I don't mean that from a derogatory standpoint, but I mean that from a standpoint of a guy who is a big part of the core and, you know, was kind of like a leader on this team, but is playing too big of a role to the point where it hurts the team. Like, yeah, you can't ask Marcus Smart to take a step back 
So I wonder if he's a guy that you ship out um, because I think they're seeing the same thing with, and obviously Marcus Smart is a much better player than Dylan Brooks, but you see the same thing with Dylan Brooks. You can't tell a guy who was an essential part of the core to take a step back. Um, so I'm wondering if, you know, you guys may have to do that with Marcus Smart. Uh, and granted, Marcus Smart was the MVP tonight, but yeah. there were times, there's times where it's just like, yo, dude, like, you know, you're not the the guy on this team. <laughs> Well, and I think he's in a weird position too, right? Because he was the first lottery guy out of the Tatum-Brown trio, right? So it's sort of like he's on their level, but he's not on their level as an offensive player. So sometimes he is a little bit too involved. But man, you got to appreciate what Smart brought to the table. I just mentioned it because he's a valuable piece for a contending level team. And as is Rob, if somebody wants to bet against the health record of Robert Williams, those would be the two guys I would think that would bring you something back in return. So I definitely think something will happen if they don't win game seven. So before we go, Raheem, Let's get to that game seven. What is your prediction, Philly, or do you think the Celts win this one? You know, the interesting thing about this game seven is that, like, it's not until Sunday. Yeah. So we've been going every other night for the last couple of days, and now these teams are rested now. So I think that kind of changes things. Um, you know, I was thinking this, I mean, game sevens are historically uh, a lower scoring game that's ugly. But I'm going to be honest with you. I just, for some reason, I just feel like the Sixers are going to kind of overcome their demons. I don't see a, I don't see a Celtics blowout. I'm going to be honest with you. I see a, a close game with either team winning close. I, I, I don't see either one of these teams blowing the other team out. I think these two teams are just evenly matched. I think the Celtics are the deeper team. Um, but I don't trust either one of these coaches. I, like you said before, I don't trust Tate. You don't trust Tatum. How can you trust Harden? Um, how can, like, who can you trust? Um, so it's just <laughs> nobody. Yeah. I, I don't have a pick for this one, but I'm going to say it's going to be a close game. That's going to come, come down the stretch. I'm leaning Celtics just because the way it ended, the fact that it feels like Jason Tatum has now been introduced to the Eastern conference semifinals. It feels like now those shots should carry him over. And I know it like momentum, it doesn't always carry over to the next game, but I do feel like those shots were so big for Tatum with how poorly he had played. He really changed the narrative. I mean, I cannot imagine what his post-game press conference would have been like if they lost this game. I mean, this is a stinker of all stinkers. This is like going back to Harden when he lost to San Antonio without Kawhi Leonard, where he had 10 points. That's how bad this thing was looking. So I'm going to go with the Celtics, and I do believe that Tatum has a big game, but I'm with you. I think it's going to be close late, which makes me worried because up until this game tonight, the Celtics in clutch time, their defensive rating in the playoffs had been a 142. They were able to get some stops tonight. Some of those were just misses by Philly. They got some good looks, but I'm going with the Celtics, Raheem, and I think it's a 30 plus point game for Tatum. Okay. I, you, I, I'm not mad at it. I just, it, it's, it's, I just have a weird feeling about this game. I don't know why. I just, uh, this Sixers team feels like a different team to me. This year. Yeah, it feels like they've turned the corner in ways that they haven't in the past. Um, but I, I think you know this is a, this is the legacy game seven. Um, yeah, it's going to change the course of both of these franchises. Whoever win or lose, I mean, win or lose is going to change the course because I, I think you know you mentioned earlier if the Celtics lose, I think you're going to see some trades. I think if the Sixers lose, I mean, we could see the death of the process era. Um, because I, I just. I, I don't know. I mean, we're, we're, they've, there's been talks about James Harden going to Houston. I mean, James Harden, like, he was 4-16 tonight. This is the 21st time he shot 25% or worse in a playoff game. So, 
I don't know if the Sixers are going to be willing to pay him again. So um, whatever happens, it's going to be massive changes for either one of these teams. Here is my one lock for our friends at FanDuel. Grant Williams is not going to hit seven threes like he did in Game 7 against Milwaukee last year. In all likelihood, Grant Williams will not see the floor after what we saw in Game 6. I'm Brian Barrett from Off the Pike. That is Raheem Palmer from the Philly Special. Raheem, great stuff, man. Enjoy Game 7, people. All right, great stuff there from Raheem Palmer. I cannot wait, cannot wait for Sunday. Game 7 at the Garden. It's going to be absolutely Epic. Cannot wait. All right. Coming up next, we'll get into the Red Sox. We'll chat with Ben Lindbergh from The Ringer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome into Off the Pike. Joining us now, senior editor at The Ringer and host of the Effectively Wild podcast, it is Ben Lindbergh. Ben has two recent articles up at TheRinger.com about the new rules, how they've affected the sport, and maybe in some ways not affected the sport. So I wanted to get into some socks, too. I'm getting very fired up, Ben, after watching (laughs) Brian Bayo on Wednesday night. I mean, he was really good. Thanks so much for the time, man. How are you? I'm doing great. Yeah, nice to see a, a sterling pitching performance by a Red Sox pitcher. Not not a frequent sight this year, despite how well things have gone overall. Yeah, we're not used to seeing that in the starting rotation. <laughs> so we'll get into that in a little bit, but I want to start with your, one of your articles. So I'm in the minority, Ben, as I'm sure you are. Like, baseball has us. We're going to watch no matter what, right? But right. when they finally implemented the pitch clock, I was so fired up as a Red Sox fan because I just dealt with two years of Sawamora, which that was incredible how slow that guy works. And even if you think about the AL East in general, like the Ryan Yarbroughs of the world, that guy works incredibly slow, right? So it was nice to see they were going to make a change. And so I had a lot of scar tissue. But you have an article up right now. Baseball's pitch clock has transformed the game length and not just in the obvious way. So you basically took April 25th and all 30 teams play the average game two hours and 36 minutes. Last year, nine inning games on average three hours and three minutes. And the other thing is only 36 minutes separated the longest game and the shortest game, as you point out in your article, which we would not have seen in previous years, right? Because you can't really account for which pitcher is going to work fast, which pitcher is going to work slow. And the same thing with the batters, guys that take forever in their batters box as well. But all the East Coast games, as you pointed out that day, are over before 10 p.m. So we knew that really the time of the game was down. But now the difference between these games is way down as well, which I think, Ben, this is major for the sport because one of the issues that some young Red Sox fans would have is, hey, 7-10, the Red Sox are playing the Yankees. Well, I can't let my fifth-year-old or my fifth-grader stay up until 10-30-11 because that's how long those games go. I do feel like the uniformity, for lack of a better term, I don't know even know if that's a real mm-hmm. word, I do think this is major <laughs> for the sport because like the other sports, now you can plan, okay, here's two and a half to two hours and 40 minutes that I'm going to reserve to watch the Red Sox or whatever your team is. I hope uniformity is a word because I used it in my article too. But yes, <laughs> that, that definitely sets the season apart. I mean, everyone knows that the games are shorter, which on its own is a, a pretty massive change, right? But it's also just the predictability, the lack of variability in the games that you know roughly when games are going to be over with a high degree of confidence, right? Because 
not only have the extra long games basically been eradicated, and I'm not as big a fan of that, of the extra innings runner, but you've basically counted out, you know, your 15, 16 inning games. And at the same time, you standardize the length to such a great degree that, yeah, we've basically gone back to the 80s or so when it comes to just the average time of game. But you have to go back a century or more to find a season when there was, as you said, so much uniformity, which really has been something that set baseball apart always, right? Because in almost every form of entertainment, you know how long it's going to go roughly, right? Like when people put on this podcast, they knew how long it's going to last. They can look at their phone right now (laughs) (laughs) and decide, do I want to keep listening to this guy? Here's how long he's going to keep talking, right? (laughs) But me, not you, of course. Of course, they want to listen to you. But (laughs) when you turn on a a baseball game, you have no idea, right? You might have some sense, okay, maybe last season the average is three hours, It could be two and a half. It could be four. It could keep going, right? It's theoretically infinite, which again, for the captive audience, for people like us who are just there for the long haul, that's fine. You know, we'll watch as long as the game goes. But for people who have a tight schedule or people who are maybe just getting interested in the sport or they only have so much time to watch or spend at the ballpark before they got to leave, they've got to go to bed. It's probably not a selling point, right? It's not great for TV. It's not great for planning purposes. So. You could say that it's made the game a little too predictable or too standardized, and maybe you miss the extremely long outlier games. I kind of miss those, but I think for the purposes of the sport and for attracting a younger audience and a new audience, it can't be a bad thing that people know roughly how long a baseball game is going to go, and it's not going to go as long as it used to. Okay, so before I move on to something else, you're not a fan of the zombie runner. You not don't like all. it. Wow, I, uh, why not? I appreciate that you use that term because that is my my preferred term. I, I don't like when people use Ghost Runner to describe it because Ghost Runner <laughs> means something else. I will die on that hill. But I Yeah, that's a wiffle ball thing, right? Exactly. They go yeah. Back in the day, yeah. We, yeah, we already had a term for that. That's a different that's uh, when the, the runner is actually invisible, not physically present, right? The ghost the zombie runner is is reincarnated, brought back from the dead. It's the runner who made an out. So Yes, aside from the term, I don't love that rule because, uh, first of all, you know, the extremely long extra inning games were very rare as it was, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah, they could throw a wrench into your pinching plans for a few days, but it was rare. It was sort of special and fun, again, for the diehards here. You know, you remember where you were for the 19 inning game, right? And you remember the guy who came in and didn't expect to pitch that day and ends up going eight innings. Like, those are special, memorable games. You might not be able to stay up to see the end of them, but I didn't mind that. And I just don't like how much it distorts the game once you get to extra innings. You know, the worst in my mind is when you have a a close game, a hard-fought pitcher's duel for the first nine innings, and then suddenly someone's on second base without doing anything to get there. The run environment, the scoring totals in extra innings now, it's just a completely different game. You know, it's like scoring is, is twice as high in extra innings as it is in the first nine innings, it's like a barely recognizable brand of baseball. So I don't like that we decide games that way. I'd prefer almost any other way, preferably just continuing to play until the game was over. But I'm so extreme on this, I'd prefer even ties, which I know is anathema to people. But I'd rather <laughs> I'd rather just say, OK, let's call it <laughs> and it's it's a draw than to say, let's decide it by making it into this strange, unrecognizable version of baseball. Fair enough. I guess I just like the fact that the managers have to use like some strategy. 
based there on where that. they are in their lineups. I like that part of it, but I, I can understand it because you're right. There's not a lot of 16 or 17 inning games, and they are very yeah. unique, especially if you stay at the ballpark for them. So I can understand where you're coming from with that. So I wanted to get to your other article. So when it comes to balls in play, MLB is striking out. That's So the average stolen base rate has climbed, as you mentioned in the article, about 41%, which is noticeable. Like you can see guys, they're running oh, yeah. all the time. And I mean, I'm watching the Red Sox last night. Jaron Duran is going like and you knew he was going to go, which in previous years, even if you're one of your fastest base runners and one of your best base runners around, you may not have been able to predict that. I knew I'm like I tweeted out. I would be shocked if Jaron Duran doesn't steal here. So that's (laughs) exciting to see. But you also mentioned that the strikeouts are pretty much the same. And you mentioned in your article, the average fastball is about 93.9 miles per hour. And all the secondary stuff across the sport is ridiculous right now, right, in terms of. The talent with the pitchers has never been higher. So I don't really see this changing just because the stuff is so nasty. The pitchers are only getting better and the use of the bullpens, right, where it feels like nowadays you don't really have. Now, maybe there are some outliers like the Justin Verlanders of the world that will set guys up for later on. Like I always remember Verlander. He would whenever he'd pitch against the Red Sox, he would be like, all right, 95 in the first inning. And then he comes mm-hmm. around to, right. he knows it's his last inning. He's up to 97, yeah. he's hitting 99. Right, right. Yep. so I don't mm-hmm. think there's a lot of pitchers like that anymore. So I don't think there's much they can do for the strikeout rate situation, do you? I think there are things that they could do, but I don't think any of this year's rules changes really targeted that directly, even though they have talked up wanting to do something about that. You know, when they've talked about wanting to make the game more active, they've talked specifically about more balls in play. And they've advertised how this is kind of a throwback season. We're turning back the clock, right? We're fielding like Ricky or fielding like Ozzy and running like Ricky, right? And in some respects, yeah. that's that's true. The games are shorter than they've been in decades. There are more steals than they've been in decades. But the strikeout rate has barely budged. I mean, compared to last season, it, it hasn't changed one bit. And that's because, as you said, the pitchers are just unhittable, right? I mean, they're all throwing extremely hard. The pitch clock hasn't done anything to suppress that. The velocity is as high as it's ever been. And everyone's throwing sweepers and nasty breaking balls. And of course, you're using more pitchers per game. So everyone's always fresh, right? So nothing has really been done to address that other than the positioning restrictions, which, you know, were partly, at least in theory, to make some balls hits that that would have been just easy outs in the shift prior to the season. That's happened to a certain extent. It hasn't been that dramatic, but what they're kind of hoping, it's like a double bank shot. You know, if we make balls in play more valuable and more rewarding to just make contact, then hitters will adjust their approach, right? Then they'll have Hmm. more of a a contact-oriented approach. They'll stop swinging for the fences. But I don't think that's going to work on its own because it's still pretty rewarding to swing for the fences. You know, the ball's still pretty lively, historically speaking. If you can drive it and hit the ball over the wall and hit it as hard as you can, and of course everyone's focusing on exit velocity now, then you're not going to have a whole lot of guys who are just, you know, I'm going to be a slap hitter and I'm going to go the other way. Now, you could have a Masataka Yoshida, maybe. He's kind of breaking the mold, right? He can make contact and hit for power, it seems like, or at least he has been recently. But there aren't a lot of hitters like him these days, really, certainly in, in the U.S. And so... I think what you would have to do, if you think this is a problem, and some people might not, your mileage may vary on whether it bothers you that there are so many strikeouts, but if you want to do something about that, I think you have to attack that problem directly. That could be something like moving the mound back, which has been discussed, has been tested in the independent leagues, right? 
just the idea that, hey, guys are releasing the ball from the same place and they're throwing way harder than they were in, you know, the 1890s when that's when we set the pitching distance there, right? Or they're even bigger and taller than they were then. So they're actually releasing the ball closer to the plate than they used to and throwing so much harder. So why not move them back a bit? My preferred solution, though, is to limit the number of pitchers on the active roster, which Mm. MLB took a small step toward doing last year, right, with 13, which is still pretty pretty liberal. But if they were to go down to 11 or 12, you know, you used to have many fewer pitchers than that on a, a staff at any given time. So it would be an adjustment relative to how teams have constructed their rosters recently. But there would be so many benefits to that, because if you only have that many pitchers available in any given game, then you have to pace yourself. You know, what you were just saying about Verlander and saving something for the big moments, very few guys do that now because they're not expected to do that. It's, hey, you know, give us five good innings and your job is done, right? You get the pat on the back. And so if you know that's how far you're going to go, then you're always going to be throwing as hard as you can because it's beneficial to throw hard, all else being equal. So fewer pitchers available, then each guy's got to go longer, which means they've got to conserve some energy. They've got to save something in the tank, right? And if you do that, that means you get starting pitchers going deeper into games, which is nice, right? It's fun to follow one starting pitcher in a game, not see just a parade of anonymous relievers for the entire game. The opener. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You also get lower velocities in theory, right? And maybe that means more offense. Maybe it means more contact because guys aren't able to blow the ball by everyone. I think it would also lead to fewer injuries because you're seeing so many guys blow out their arms now, even though they're throwing fewer pitches and fewer innings, which is kind of counterintuitive. The problem is, though, that they're throwing max effort on every pitch. And there's a lot of research that's shown that the really harmful thing is if you're just constantly maxing out, you know, putting all of your effort into every delivery instead of pacing yourself, that's just going to come back to bite you. That's a lot of extra strain. So in my mind, that would be kind of the cure-all or the closest that we could come. And it's definitely something MLB has considered and thought about, but you kind of have to drag teams and managers kicking and screaming to that because they've gotten pretty attached to the the 12-man pitching staff, 13-man pitching staff, and they don't want to surrender their relievers. Well, I think that is the best solution. And that's a really good idea because the other portion to that too is like these guys have to think out the game more. The guys have to think about like Kurt Schilling used to always talk about like setting up the guy for the sixth inning. Like guys would have to think about that. And with less relievers available, you're not going to have as much spacing with them in between outings. So managers have to really think, hey, am I going to him in the right. sixth inning or should I wait? Because then I can't use him the next day. So I think that really would help. And just from a pure selfish standpoint, that would mean the Red Sox would give up on the Ryan Brazier experience once and for all because there's no way you could justify keeping him on the roster if that's the case. So selfishly, I love that. Well, so I wanted to get to this. enough right there. Yeah. Oh, my God. I, I don't know what their fixation is with this guy. He had one good run at 18. He has not been good since 18, and they continue to trot him out there. It's yeah, I mean, mind-boggling he's, he's to me. Just about the, the last man standing from that championship team, right? So he's kind of I know. <laughs> kept around as a reminder, maybe. You know, they, now that you say that, I think the only two guys left are, well, I guess outside of the manager, are Raphael Devers and Ryan Brazier. He's like mm-hmm. the lone survivor from that yep. group. It's incredible. Yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. So the other thing that comes to mind when you mentioned the stolen base attempts being up this year, the Red Sox started the season with this platoon situation with the catchers, Reese McGuire and Connor Wong behind the plate. But what we've seen lately is even with 
say, a righty on the mound, they're still having Connor Wong start a lot of these games. He's had six defensive run saves, second among catchers, tied for fifth in Major League Baseball overall. You look at the pop time, he's third in Major League Baseball, throwing out eight of 17 guys, which is 47.1%. I know it's a small sample, but the pop time is there. The arm is there. I know the framing numbers have not been good on Wong historically. He's not been good when it comes to that. He's a different type of catcher, too. Super athletic guy for a guy that plays the catcher position. But what have your impressions been of Wong in this early start to the season, if you will? Do you like him? Yeah, it's it's nice to be seeing some returns from the Mookie Betts trade. Right? I know, <laughs> yeah, I know it. I know it doesn't really ease the sting that much, but at least you know Verdugo's playing really well, and you're getting something out of Connor Wong, so that's uh, some consolation, I guess. Although they they really could use uh, Mookie at shortstop, I guess. <laughs> these I days, know it's or... a good point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but yeah, Wong has been pretty impressive, right? And you know, I, I I think offensively, if he can give you what he's given you so far which is, you know, close to a league average hitter, that's going to be perfectly fine at catcher, right? And, you know, historically speaking, pop time, even if you weren't necessarily calling it that and and how you can control the running game, that was the be-all and end-all when it came to catcher defense. That was maybe the number one thing that people looked at. In recent years, it's been all about framing because uh, framing can make such an impact if you can steal a strike here and there. There are just so many opportunities to do that over the course of a given game that it can really make a major difference. And of course, the running game was kind of muted as it was. People weren't trying to steal, so you didn't necessarily need a catcher who could control that. But now that that's back in a very big way, then that's going to come back into vogue. And of course, you know, if we do get some sort of automatic ball strike system in coming seasons, uh, maybe a challenge system would be my preferred implementation of that, then framing would be a, a little less important than it's been, you know, still somewhat important if you retain the challenge system at least. So I think yeah. we we will see a, a bit more of a swing back towards arm being a really important trait for catcher defense, especially because a lot of pitchers are calling their own games now, right, with pitch comms. So you're sort of stripping away some things or maybe minimizing the importance of things that catchers have had to do. And meanwhile, with all the running that's going on, you're increasing the importance of that. So if you can keep that up, then, yeah, it's a, a nice solution. All right. So I want to get to Brian Bayo because Wednesday night he got he goes six against the Braves, gives up just two earned runs, five scoreless innings before that sixth inning where he kind of ran out of gas and Acuna hammered a fastball on a 3-1 count. He worked himself into a bad count and he hit it 470 feet. I mean, this was an absolute bomb by Acuna, mm-hmm. but it's going to happen against a guy like Acuna once in a while. Yes. But if you look at the numbers... Bayo, 14 of the 17 batted balls were ground balls. That's, what, north of 82%. Last four starts, the ground ball rate has been north of 60%, which is obviously really, really good. And he's got 97 with sync. The changeup is really filthy. The slider was actually effective on Wednesday, which has been sort of an up-and-down pitch with him throughout his career. The walk rate has been better this year. He's at 10.1% last year. It's down to 67 in the majors, which that can be an issue at times. And I was texting my buddy that covers the team, Julian McWilliams from The Globe, and he was pointing out the fact that the four-seamer, he was actually able to throw that up in the zone last night, where if he's got that pitch, that's where he can get more swing and miss stuff. Because you look at it on the season, like last night, he got a lot more swings and misses than he ordinarily does, and he got five out of 11 with that four-seamer. But on average, he's at about, he's in like the 61st percentile, and with his stuff, you'd expect that number to be up in terms of the whiff rate. But what have your impressions been of Bayo early this season and early on in his career? Because obviously the stuff's electric. I mean, if there's a concern, I would say it's sort of the control. Like even the first inning that he pitched on Wednesday, 
It was a one, two, three inning, but he had a three ball count to each hitter. And so that's sort of been the one issue with him that I've noticed is the command at times, because the stuff is definitely there. Right. Yeah, I watched his first start of the season. That was a Shohei Otani game, and I rarely miss a Shohei Otani start. But my my first impression was not strong, right? Because yeah. uh, <laughs> he didn't, <laughs> it was, didn't. It was bad. Yeah, didn't come out of the gate so great with uh, with the first start and with the first couple, really. But but lately, yeah, there there has been a lot to like there, you know. And again, with this staff, you'd you'd be happy to see any sign of life from from a lot of these guys and and he's about to turn 24 right i mean he's still a very young guy and there's a lot to like about the stuff so you know he's not necessarily who you want kind of being the foundation of a potential playoff team at at this point i suppose but given how the staff has has performed on the whole i mean the red sox have just been carried by their bats to this point right i mean the starting rotation has been rough and you know, maybe the the bullpen is is helping you out a bit, but but it'd be tough to sustain the level of performance that the team as a whole has had, given this same starting pitching performance. Especially if not all of the hitters who are off to hot starts continue to hit as well as they have recently. So you really need a find. You need someone to emerge and kind of take on the mantle there. And I think they'd still need to add potentially if they want to stay in the mix. It's a extremely tough division, obviously, as I'm sure you've noticed. But yeah. there is a, a lot to like there. It's definitely picked up and, and looked more promising over his recent outings. Should we have any hope for a big maple James Paxton who really, <laughs> I mean, the Red Sox last season, they paid him to rehab, essentially. He never came back. He ended up with this lat situation. I know if you go back from like 17 through 19, before he started piling up all these injuries, he's seventh in strikeout rate and he's sitting over 95 with a nasty curve. Like the numbers are really good against righties. But you look at some of the stuff in turn, I'm not going to pretend like I watched all his his outings with Worcester as he's making his way back, <laughs> but he had five walks in his last outing in AAA. So I just wonder, because we've seen the situation with Sale where it's taken forever for him just to get to this point. I just wonder if we should have any expectations for Paxson who makes his debut on Friday. I think historically speaking, having high expectations for James Paxton has, has not worked out well for anyone, really. <laughs> I mean, I've I've fallen under the sway of James Paxton myself in some seasons just because, I mean, look, when he has been healthy, he's been very effective at times. But when has he been healthy? It's just been very few and, and far between, right? I mean, right. you know, he's he's never really had a season. I mean, he's maxed out at maybe 160 innings and... And lately, you can't count on anything close to that. So just to to see him pitching at all is encouraging. But really, you know, he's he's kind of uh, I don't know if breaking my heart is is a little too strong, probably, but has definitely dashed my dreams for him a few too many times over the years for for me to think that he's going to be the savior here. I wish him well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me, it's just like it's a flyer at this point. If it works yeah. out, it's great because you weren't expecting him to do anything. That's where I'm at. I don't have expectations for the guy. So if he gives you something, great. But mm-hmm. so Chris Sale, real rocky start to the season. I was at the, his first start against Baltimore where you walk into the stadium and it's already three to nothing. He's getting mm-hmm. clobbered. But Last Friday against the Phillies, he had his fastball back. He's sitting at 96 with a four-seamer. He actually hit 99. So, And the slider was effective in that game. But against, like, if you look at it on the season, the horizontal break against the Phillies, it was at eight inches. And in his prime, he had that wipeout slider, right? That's what we know Chris Sale for. It's like, oh, the best left-handed slider since Randy Johnson. That was his whole thing. And in his prime, 
He's at 14 inches of horizontal break. This year, he's at 11. His first season back from TJ in 2021, he's around 11. So it's great for me that the velocity is clearly back with Chris Sale. He's had his best fastball since he's had Tommy John against the Phillies last Friday night. But I'm wondering in terms of, because we see it at times, we see the good slider. It's just really not consistent. And you can see him at times, like he's really frustrated with some of the bad sliders that he throws where it's like two inches of horizontal break. This is Chris Sale. How is this happening? So do you think there's a way he gets the feel for his slider back? And maybe we can't predict that, but do you think he can be a top end of the rotation? I'm not saying an ace, but can he be a number one or two guy this season? Or do you think that's just out of the cards at this point? Well, I'm definitely more optimistic than I was about James Paxton. <laughs> I think that, <laughs> you know, even when Sale was kind of getting clobbered, he was still missing bats, right? Yeah. And you look at, at some of the, the lines there in those early outings, you know, I mean, even his first outing of the season, right? I mean, he goes three innings, he gives up seven runs, he gives up three homers, still strikes out six guys in three innings. You know, when right. I see someone racking up strikeouts like that, as of course he used to when he was healthy and effective... That gives me hope that there's still something there, right? If there's still swing and miss stuff, then it's a matter of making it more consistent and harnessing it. You know, it's tough to make someone miss bats who doesn't miss bats. But if someone is able to do that, then it's a question of can they avoid just serving up meatballs every now and then, right? And you would think that coming back from the long layoff and the injury and everything else that he would get sharper as time goes on. So I would be semi-optimistic about him, you know, again, probably best not to get too high hopes up, just given the the durability and the injury track record. Yeah, he'll fall off a bike. Yeah, I mean, he's someone who, you know, even when he was one of the best pitchers in baseball, he had a track record of kind of tailing off as the season would go on, you know, and people would blame that on his build and is he built for the long season? And I don't know whether that was fair or not, but there was definitely a, a track record of that. And by the time the playoffs would roll around, it would seem like he'd be gassed right now. You know, you'd be happy if he's still standing when the playoffs roll around now. So, yeah, good point. (laughs) It it could be that he gets stronger now as the season goes on, as he kind of works himself into shape and, you know, works off the rough edges and the rust and everything. Or it could be that he runs out of gas even more quickly because he hasn't been built up and he's been out of action for so long. So I don't know if you can count on him in the long run, but. I think that in terms of the stuff, it it's still there. And, you know, sometimes guys come back from Tommy John and, and long layoffs like that. And the control and the command is a little slower to come back than than other aspects of their performance. And so you might think that just that occasional slider that he uncorks, that's just not at all what he wanted to throw. You know, you look at like his advanced stats and his uh, defense independent stats and that sort of thing. And some of them are pretty positive and, and yeah. suggest that, you know, you could... I guess if you hadn't watched him, at least interpret that as saying he's been really unlucky, right? Because he's given up a lot of home runs on the fly balls that have been hit against him. And that is something that you would expect to kind of even out over time. And so if you just kind of gave him like a an average home run per fly ball rate and you factor in all the strikeouts and everything, you might say, okay, the underlying numbers, the peripherals are pretty solid there. Then you watch him and you think maybe it's not luck, maybe it's not an accident, maybe it's just that he loses his feel for the pitch now and then and he just you know puts one where he doesn't want to put one. So it's kind of a question of will he get a better feel for it as the season goes on and that doesn't seem like an unreasonable thing to hope for. 
Yeah, I'm really excited to watch him this weekend against St. Louis, building off that start that he had against Philadelphia to see what he can do. Because I, I thought the command was better in that game, too. It's not just about like the walks with him. like He was missing badly in the zone, which was causing a lot of damage. So I'm really interested right. to see what this start looks like over the weekend. But speaking of this rotation, Alex Cora said this week, obviously, they got to shorten it up because they got all, they have a bunch of starters, but they don't have a lot of good starters right now. <laughs> yeah. But Whitlock's making his way back. Pavetta has been a disaster. Like this guy has been worse than he's ever been. The hard hit rate falls off the bat 95 plus 51.9%. That's 109th of 112 starters that have thrown at least 30 innings. The barrel percentage 15.4%, 111th. The ERA is 102nd. And it's not like he's unlucky, like the expected ERA is 106 too. So for me, I don't think he's going to be good in the bullpen either. Like Pavetta's a guy that actually, and I know he had a good outing in the playoffs a couple of years ago against Tampa, but his numbers actually get better as the game goes on. I don't know if that's because he has trouble getting the feel for his curveball, but I just, I don't even know if they should keep him around, to be honest with you, because I don't really know what he brings to the table at this point. And Whitlock, his numbers second time through the order have been really bad, but it's a, it's a really small sample size with him. So I think it's going to be Sale Kluber, who has thrown the ball better lately, although you know what he is at this point. He's just out there to eat up innings. He's been better as of late. So I think it's going to be Sale Kluber and now Big Maple's in the mix here. We'll see how long he can stay. Mm -hmm. And then Hauk, I feel like he can be a real weapon out of the bullpen because his stuff is there and you can set your clock to it every time the second time through the order, he's going to get clobbered. It happens every time (laughs) he goes out there. He's absolutely horrible in the fourth inning. Guys are hitting almost 400 against him. So, and honestly, if Cutter Crawford wasn't dealing with his hamstring situation right now, I would say he should be the other guy in the rotation along with Bayo. But where do you think they should go in in terms of this five Man rotation, because I can't imagine, like, you cannot send Bayo down, because I know he's the guy with options. You can't send him down after the way that he's been pitching. Like, you can argue over the last month, he's been their most consistent guy out of the rotation. So, I mean, what would you do in terms of the rotation? That, if Cutter Crawford was healthy, I'd have him be the guy in there. But I don't know what they're going to do, and I just wonder who the odd man out is. What would you, who would you have as your five? Yeah, gosh, there's there are not that many desirable options. You know, it's not like no. you're you're sifting through... 10 different guys that you could mix and match and pick your five. I mean, there are only so many palatable pitchers there who you could stick in there, right? So, I mean, you know, you you have to add to this mix if you can. And and, maybe maybe you're going to ask me about just outside solutions because there's got to be one, right? I mean, you know, you get to this point and your offense is kind of carrying you. You know, it's not a spectacular defensive team. Your bullpen's been fine, but you are hard pressed to compete in a division as good as this AL East, even in the wild card race, which is basically with AL East teams too at this point. And, you know, stay in that mix just all on offense. You know, they've had a, a top five offense so far, which is great. There are some guys who are maybe a bit over their heads there, but you you just, you know, they're such well balanced, well rounded teams that they're competing against that even if you could sustain a top five offense, if you have a bottom five starting rotation and that might be generous, then it's it's going to be tough to compete. So I don't know if there's really an internal solution that I feel great about. You know, yeah. you, you, you keep running sale out there. You hope that he gets better as time goes on and you keep running Kluber out there. You, you know, you use Paxton as long as Paxton is available to you, which <laughs> may not be very long as we've discussed. And... <laughs> You just kind of hope for the best, you know, like you, you gotta, I guess, stick with Bayo. I'd, I'd agree with you there and riding the hot hand and 
then, you know, no one's got a great fifth starter. It's just that the problem is that with the Red Sox, you know, you're looking at your third and fourth starter being fifth starters too, right? And there's no there's no established ace that you can kind of count on every fifth day to to give you a great outing here. So ultimately, if they stay in the mix here and if they're serious about contending, they've got to look outside the organization. Yeah, and that's what I wanted to get from you next, because if you look at it, Bloom is under a lot of pressure, even if I really like a lot of the offseason moves they made, like Yoshida, they were criticized mm-hmm. for that. That's clearly worked out. I mean, the guy just recently had a 16-game hitting streak. He's been tremendous. The Turner edition was big. He's been hitting the ball, and he doesn't strike out. He puts the ball in play. It's been really beneficial for this team, and he played a little bit of third on Wednesday, get Rafi off his feet a little bit in the bullpen. You got Jansen, who's mm-hmm. been really good. That was a question based on the pitch clock changes because he worked slow. Martin is now back from the injury. He looked really nasty on Wednesday night. So I like a lot of the changes they made. But Bloom, you mentioned earlier the Mookie Betts trade. Last year was a really bad season for them. And at the deadline, they handled that incredibly poorly where they tried to split it. Like they made a move to help the team and then they gave away Vasquez, which I didn't have a problem with that trade in general. But my bigger issue is like, you're in fifth place. Get rid of J.D. Martinez. Like, you're not going to sign him after the season. We all know this. So he's under pressure. Is there a guy out there? Are there guys out there that you think would make sense? Because I do think, unfortunately, I know they want to build up, continue to build up this farm system, which has, to Bloom's credit, improved tremendously since he's taken over. I'm not saying they're the best farm system in baseball, but it's improved a lot since when he inherited it. Is there some targets you think that'll be on the market for the Sox? Yeah, it's it's funny. It's been such a roller coaster ride for the Red Sox, really. It's just not news to you or to your listeners, but over the past decade, decade plus at this point, there's just no telling what the Red Sox will do, Eddie, from season to season, right? I mean, it keeps you guessing. They might go from winning the World Series to finishing in last place. I mean, the projections can't seem to peg them. Just they have the most extreme results from season to season of of any team over it's the crazy. past. crazy. Yeah, so I mean... You know, they're already, I guess, sitting prettier than I expected them to be at this point in the season. So you want to capitalize that, right? And so sometimes you have a a long-term plan and you think it might be a a bridge year, I guess, as Theo Epstein used to say, or a rebuilding year. And then all of a sudden you find yourself in contention and maybe you have to move up the timeline a little. So it's obviously early to assess the trade deadline and and who might be available because, uh, you know, we're months away and it depends how teams do between now and then. Right. And, and how the Red Sox do between now and then for, for that matter. But as far as who might be available, I mean, there are some teams that are already looking like likely sellers at the trade deadline. Right. And so you're kind of picking over already depleted rosters there. But you look to, you know, some of the, the AL Central teams that are struggling, the White Sox and the Royals, you might have someone like Lucas Giolito or Brad mm. Keller you know, it's hard to find anyone you would want on the Oakland A's these days, but I guess there's someone like Paul Blackburn is is still around and <laughs> would be rosterable. All-star Paul Blackburn. Someone has to be an all-star on that team. <laughs> there there are also, you know, there are, I guess, some potential reunions that, that you could think about, right? Eduardo Rodriguez has looked incredible. And... Oh, man, he's been inc- <laughs> he's been unreal. He has been great. He has, right? And, you know, the Tigers have been playing well of late, but they're just kind of in a strange spot because last year was supposed to be the year that they turned the corner and instead they went back around the corner that they had already rounded, right? They just went backward in every respect. And now they've been playing well of late, so who knows, right? It's a weak division and maybe they think they can build on this and obviously he's someone they signed long term. So 
again, it depends, you know, if they start slumping again and, and playing like they did at the start of the season last year, then maybe they think, all right, we're we're basically doing a, a restart on the rebuild. So let's uh, get rid of this guy and see what we can get. Right. So that's a possibility. I mean, I know it's going way out on a limb to suggest this, but perhaps the Red Sox could acquire Rich Hill. <laughs> Has that ever happened before? Uh, he's he's out there, I guess. Uh, you know, everyone's obviously dreaming of uh, will Shohei Otani be available at the trade deadline. That's kind yeah. of pie in, pie in the sky stuff at this point. I mean, you know, the if you believe the playoff odds at, at Fangraphs, for instance, the, the Angels and the Red Sox have roughly the same chances to make the playoffs as of today. So as long as the Angels are in it, they're not going to give up someone like Otani, especially because he's selling so many tickets for them and, and drawing so much attention to them. So it would take them really falling out of the race and the running for, for them to consider putting him on the market. But those are kind of the names that, that came to mind. And, you know, in the next couple months, obviously, as as things develop, we'll see who becomes available and, and who's hurt at that point and who's uh, surpassed expectations. But there will be pitching help. There's always pitching help available. So if the Red Sox are serious about this and if they're still in the running at that point, if they haven't fallen way behind the pack in this just meat grinder of a division, then I think there are guys they could go get potentially. Then it becomes a question of, you know, are you holding very closely onto your prospects and are you saying this is not the year, right? And and Bloom has uh, kind of tried to like straddle that line, you know, and, and be not necessarily a buyer or a seller, but both at the same time and look for strategic upgrades and also some long-term oriented moves and I think kind of confused everyone in the process about what their strategy was so you know he might look to do something like that again but if the Red Sox have managed to keep this up and we're talking mid-July then I would hope that they would go get someone to support the guys who've been helping them exceed expectations so far. Yeah, well, Ben, here's the thing about Otani. They don't have to trade for him because they're just going to sign him in the offseason, okay? Sure. Like, I've, I'm already I'm already 100% in on that. Like, go after uh-huh. Otani, sign him in the offseason. So I'm, I'm excited for the possibility of Otani coming to the Red Sox. But the Erod reunion is something I didn't think of. I mean, that would be mm-hmm. great. I used to get in fights with Red Sox fans all the time about, hey, the expected stuff is way better than the yes, raw numbers. Right. He's 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 given up all this soft contact and, yeah, uh, and all big, this. Big fit and, guy, yeah. Yeah, and Cora <laughs> right. always seemed to get the best out of him. Like when he was slumping, he'd get him motivated. So, or, and the Royals guys, definitely to keep an eye on them. But Erod, I mean, that would be, I think they would be really excited to get Erod back if they could. It just depends on what the price is. So that's interesting. Right. So before, and if they are close, like if they're still in contention, have a chance to make it to the postseason, they're going to have to do it because Bloom's in a situation where, yeah. I'm not saying that the organization has said anything, but I mean, if you have another bad year, then you're in jeopardy of losing your job. So he's going to have to make a move if it comes to that. All right. So before I let you go, I wanted to ask you, so Tristan Casas, one of the biggest prospects in the Red Sox organization, really behind Marcelo Mayer, but he's right up there. You know, he's top three by like everybody that ranks the prospects in terms of in the Red Sox organization. So Wednesday, he hits this 442 foot bomb off Colin Mm -hmm. McHugh, absolutely crushes it. He has this terribly slow start to the season, but his last 27 plate appearances, like the smallest of smallest sample size in the month of May, 17 batted balls, nine have been hard hit, four barrels. So in May, 286, 407, 571, 979. And the thing about Casas is he was still like the profile with him, incredible command of the strike zone, right? Like he always, his walk mm-hmm. rate, even during the month of April, he was still over 17%. I mean, he will not swing at pitches out of the zone, which is 
really good. The problem for him is he just wasn't finishing off these at-bats. I'm wondering, do you think this is the part of the season where Casas now a little bit more adjusted to Major League pitching? Do we see him start to get on a little bit of a run here? Yeah, I guess it's sort of the the offensive equivalent of of Bayo as we were talking about. Just not a, <laughs> not a great start, but looked pretty impressive lately. Yeah, I mean, I like the underlying skills there. Obviously, the po- the prospect pedig- pedigree is impressive, but it's you know when you start from a a base of walking as often as he does, eighteen percent of the time. I mean, you know, that's almost like a Juan Soto esque walk rate, right? Yeah. So if if you can be that selective and take that many free bases, and you have power, because that's the thing about him, right? I mean, he's not just someone who stands up there and and hopes that you'll throw a ball. I mean, when he gets a hold of one, it does go a long way, as you said, right? So I've seen some really impressive long plate appearances from him and just bombs that he's hit. So, you know, he's he's struck out a little more than you'd like, and, you know, you're going to get some strikeouts if you're a, a very patient, selective guy. You're going to take some pitches that are, are going to go against you. But if you can walk that often and you can put a charge into balls like that, that makes me optimistic. And, you know, you look at some of his other numbers and just the batting average on balls in play as low as it is, you know, sub yeah. 200. I mean, that's not something that's going to continue, right? Because he does hit the ball hard, as you're saying. And you look at just the quality of contact versus the actual results and the numbers, and there's still a fairly sizable gap there where, you know, just based on how well he's hit the ball, even thus far over the course of the season, you'd think his numbers should be a little bit better than than they are, than the surface stats. So, yeah, I, I would still be a, a bit bullish despite the slow start. You know, some of the it's tough to teach plate discipline and the kind of selectivity that he has. And so if you can combine that with the ability to hit baseballs a very long way, then you're most of the way there, you know? So I, I, I'm very excited to see what, what he can do over the rest of the season. Cause it was, it was looking pretty dodgy, you know, and you were was wondering ugly. just how, how much longer the leash would be. Right. But I think he's definitely earned himself, you know, some staying time, some staying power here. Yeah. And he's a fun at bat to watch. So I'm glad like yeah. this month he's starting to get some results. Like I remember back to when Kyle Schwarber was making the run with the Red Sox, where it was a great move at the deadline that they made. And he just spit on everything. And look, I mm-hmm. knew what Kyle Schwarber did from afar. But when he actually came into the Red Sox lineup like that year in 2021, they didn't have anybody that walked. Right. So Schwarber comes in. I'm like, this is totally different. And right. Watson Cassis, you kind of get those vibes, right, where it's like, how did he take that pitch? How did he not mm-hmm. swing at that pitch? And one of the things he was doing early in the season, Ben, which is so entertaining, and this is when he was, before he went in this major slump, he would be like, when the ball would be out, he'd just yell it. He'd say, out, or up, right. like, to, yeah. to the umpire, which yeah. I thought was he's, hilarious. Yeah, he's kind of a character. He's fun. I mean, it's it's also sort of Soto-esque, right? You know, it's entertaining to watch Soto just take pitches, because he has the whole between-pitch routine. Yeah. I, I know that... I know that doesn't make a highlight reel or sound super excited, like what a what a great take, you know, but yeah. but it is. I mean, I enjoy watching someone who has a great sense of the strike zone and will just spit on those pitches that someone else is going to chase. And you think, how did he not swig at that? You know, sure. Like swinging and making contact is probably more exciting, all else being equal than, than not swinging. But being really judicious like that. It's it's a tough thing to teach, and not everyone has that ability. So if you can start from from that base, then I'm optimistic. Yeah, and if you can have one of those takes before you drop a 450-foot bomb, I'm all <laughs> yeah. for it. Work yourself into a 2-1 count or a 3-run count or a 2-0 count, something along those lines. 
All right, that is that is Ben Lindbergh, senior editor at The Ringer, host of the Effectively Wild podcast. Read his stuff at TheRinger.com. Ben, thank you so much for the time, man. This is a ton of fun. Really appreciate it. Yeah, anytime. My pleasure. Want to be more active this summer? Sierra helps you save on everything from swimsuits to stand-up paddleboards, tennis rackets to fishing tackle. And if that doesn't float your boat, we also have pool floats. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Three great words. Free fries Friday. Especially when they're used in that exact order. Get a free medium fries with $1 minimum purchase. Valid one time on Friday. Separate participating McDonald's through 1231 Excludes tax. Must opt into rewards. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Man, what a night. Great stuff from Raheem Palmer on the Seas and great stuff from Ben Lindbergh on the Red Sox, man. Ben was really good. Raheem was really good. I'm fired up right now, so we do have time to get to one of your calls. Let's do that. The number is 617-396-7172. Who's up first? Keith Bryan, what a terrific game. Joe from West Virginia. Your guy, Jason Tatum, with the season on the line, and he had been doing nothing the entire game into the biggest moment with the you know the, the biggest shots to, to catapult the seashore game seven at the Garden on Sunday, a trip I'm sure Doc Rivers was not looking forward to making. Hey, we're going to be listening to for your breakdown and shakedown from the game because it was just how it was found and through throughout. And I said, just get it to Boston for a game seven and roll the dice there. All right, take care, man. Bye. All right, great stuff, Joe. Man, I'm with you. That was, I was anxious the whole game. Until the very end, I was anxious the whole game. Even when the Celtics had the lead, I was worried because Jason Tatum was not playing well. He was 0 of 13, or what was it, 0 of 10, I should say, in the first quarter. And all these games, he had been struggling in the first quarter. I was just so worried. Or I should say 0 for 13 before the third quarter. He's 0 of 5 in the first quarter. But I was just so stressed out this entire game. I didn't feel good, and they survived. And it does take some balls to hit those shots. And I say, oh, well, he's the superstar. He's supposed to take those shots. Yeah, but his confidence looked completely broken throughout this game. Some of those threes, he had just some awful misses. He had some horrible turnovers in this game. He was smoking layups. So it's great that he hit those shots late. Now let's just see if he can put a couple of these games together. You need a big Jason Tatum in game seven, which I believe we're going to get after what transpired in game six. And basically his teammates... And Philly missing some shots really saved the Celtics season. So Tatum owes this to his teammates to finish it off in Game 7. Yeah, he bailed them out at the end of Game 6, but they bailed him out for pretty much the first 44 minutes of this game until he started to come alive late in this one. So I cannot wait for Game 7. I'm going to be biting my nails the whole time. I'm going to be nervous the whole time. But I do feel like the Celtics are going to win this game on Sunday. I really do. I'm not saying that I feel, as we were chatting with Raheem about, I'm not super confident about it, but I do feel like the Celtics are going to win this game. All right, so I did want to get to this real quickly. Colin Cowherd had on a show the other day a trade proposal for the Celtics. This is after they, of course, lost to Philadelphia in Game 5. They go down 3-2. This is before, in Cowherd's defense, this is before Jalen qualified for the Supermax, which at this point, the Celtics are going to offer him the Supermax. They have no choice not to. If they don't, they're losing the player. If you give him anything less than the Supermax after the way the relationship has been over the past couple of years, Jalen's going to say, I'm good, right? But his proposal was Jalen Brown and Malcolm Brogdon 
for Jordan Poole and Andrew Wiggins. And Bill actually tweeted about it, <laughs> tweeted at Colin that this is the worst fake trade proposal ever. And it's horrible. Poole, twice he played less than 20 minutes in the Lakers series. He's about to start a four-year, $128 million contract, and the Warriors won't even play him. They're afraid to play him because this guy's such a bad player defensively, and he takes some of the most dumb shots you'll ever see offensively. He thinks he's Steph Curry, and he's nowhere close to Steph Curry. And Jalen Brown is obviously a significantly better player than Andrew Wiggins. Jalen's better than Wiggins, okay? And... Brogdon is better than Poole. And if you look at it in terms of Wiggins, okay, Wiggins has averaged north of 23 points once. Jalen has done it the past three years. Wiggins has never averaged more than 24 points. Jalen has done it the past two years. Like, there's no debating Jalen versus Wiggins. There's no debating Brogdon versus Poole. I think that this is just Cowherd looking at it from, hey, Jalen, he went to Cal. This would be a great fit. Jalen going to play with Steph Curry. He was only looking at it from that end because... If he actually watched the Celtics play this year, or if he watched the Golden State Warriors play this year, there's no way that he would have this take. There's no way that he could possibly think that pool for Wiggins or pool and Wiggins for Brogdon and Jalen is a good deal from a Celtics angle. There's no way he actually believes that. That is just a horrible take. Like, I'm all for hot takes. I like takes that are maybe over the top sometimes. That's a horrible take, okay? But I did want to get to the Patriots schedule real quick. My way too early predictions, best case scenario, okay? This is best case scenario where I see the Patriots. So Tom is coming back for the opener against the Eagles, which is awesome. Kraft said on Good Morning Football, I invited him back to come here to be with us at the opening game and let the fans in New England thank him for the great service he gave us for over 20 years. Now, this is awesome, and I know that Finally, Brady can come back. He's not on the Bucks anymore. This is going to be awesome. I cannot wait to see Brady in the building. The only thing is you're playing the Eagles. They just went to the Super Bowl. In all likelihood, you're going to lose that game. Now, the one thing the Eagles could do to troll him is Nick Foles is contemplating retirement. The Eagles could bring Nick Foles to the game and have him up in the Jeffrey Lurie's uh, box, the owner of the Eagles, right? They could do that. I can't see that happening. Foles is too good of a guy, but this is cool. The place is going to be electric, and I'm sure Kraft will go all out for this thing. Place will be bumping. So I'm going to be excited for this. Now, we all knew that the Patriots schedule getting away from the Brady thing was going to be difficult. AFC West, NFC East. And by the way, I got to get to that Brady thing. Opener, I got to get there. I got to see Brady getting honored and all that. But nonetheless, we knew the schedule was going to be difficult by the divisions you were playing. The first four games, it's a fucking bear for the Patriots. Home for Philly, as we mentioned. Best team in the NFC. Miami at home with Tua in that group of great weapons. Waddle Hill, etc. They added Ramsey. They added Chubb. Uh, They had a chub in the middle of the season, but you get the point. Then you go on the road to play Rodgers and the Jets, which I think could be a good thing in week three because maybe they haven't quite found their groove yet. Remember Brady and the Bucs, it took them a little bit to get going offensively. Then you're on the road at Dallas. They added Cooks to go along with CeeDee Lamb. Then you look at a nice stretch home for the Saints with Derek Carr. Visit the Raiders, who the Patriots should have beat last year, and that defense stinks. Home for Buffalo at Miami. Home for Washington. I believe right now Sam Howell's penciled in to be their starter. And then you go to Germany for Indy. It's either going to be Gardner Minshew or Anthony Richardson, the rookie at that point. So of the first four that I mentioned, you have to take at least one from Philly, Miami, the Jets, and Dallas. And I believe they'll take at least one. That next stretch, I'd say you have to take four of that six to get to five and five prior to the bye. And hopefully during that stretch, you can squeeze out an extra win. But I think after that, the Patriots, you got to go five and five in that first 10 games. But after that, you think about it, Giants, great coach, but a winnable game. Home for the Chargers, the Patriots own Herbert. 
Herbert, two games against the Patriots, 44 of 88, 50%, two touchdowns, four picks, 216 a game, 52.8 rating, which is the worst that he's had against any team. Bill, for some reason, and maybe I shouldn't say for some reason, he's one of the greatest coaches in the history of the NFL. He is the greatest coach ever, but defensively, he's a genius. So I like the Patriots there. Then at Pittsburgh, Thursday night, winnable, because that game prior is against the Chargers. It's at home, and you're not traveling too far to Pittsburgh. Home for Casey Monday night. It's going to be tough. Then you go to Denver. I don't trust Russell Wilson after last year. I know Sean Payton's great. We'll see if he can fix him. At Buffalo, obviously tough. Home for the Jets. So based on that schedule, you beat the Giants, you beat the Chargers, you beat the Steelers, you beat the Broncos, you beat the Jets one of those times, right? So here's my best case scenario for the Patriots. Early look at the schedule. My way too early predictions. 10 and 7. 10 and 7 based on the schedule. Um, Maybe I'm just very optimistic after what the Celtics did. They survived. But best case scenario, people. Best case, I see 10 and 7 for the Patriots. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in. 617-396-7172. So if you're watching this game 7 and you're pissed off after or you're really happy after, make sure to leave us a voicemail at 617-396-7172. Or you can email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Srudy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days.